Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. You know, it's a it's a delight to talk shop <laughs> with a fellow appreciator of organization of all kinds, particularly how they become more human in their development over the time that they are in existence. And that would be Cecile Betty, who, with whom I did uh, talk shop in this conversation. But fortunately for you, she did a lot more talking than I did about her, one of her most profound interests as an OD pr practitioner, which is employee ownership and what difference that makes in regard to the inner development of a company to match the outer development that tends to be commonly observed. The inner development takes a keener eye and an understanding of human behavior in organizations that Cecile certainly has. And you'll hear her talk about her subject, her primary subject of the day, a company called Karis, K-A-R-A-S, who makes uh, reels, Karis reels. They make the kinds of wheels that cables get wound around. Hmm. That's not a very complex uh, product. And yet it's it certainly is, and most importantly, it's owned by its employees. And they make a, almost all the important decisions about how to get those reels uh, ordered, made, delivered, and maintained all over the Western Hemisphere. So here is the storyteller, the person who has the eye on inner development, Cecile Petit. Folks, recently I attended a, a very interesting uh, event, inaugural event of something called the Open Source OD, OD o Open Source Organization Development. And uh, the gentleman who I have had a podcast episode with, Bill Bendel, had convened a, a wonderful, eclectic group of people who um, are concerned about the quality of life in an, in an organization and and other better ways that we can invent or improve that will uh, make li living in an organization, making a living and living in an organization much more attractive. And one of the folks uh, that I met was Cecile Betty, Betty, Cecile Betty. And as much as I grew up in a state of Maine where a lot of uh, Canadian French folks have moved, I still have to learn how to speak <laughs> respectfully of a French uh, last name, Betty. It's a beautiful name, really, much, much pretty, prettier than Bedit. <laughs> which I'm sure you've gotten, <laughs> Cecile. So, so welcome. And uh, do you recall that event too, or am I maybe I got to re-record re, re my introduction? Do you do you recall event the event with Bill Blundell? Yes, I do. I do. And, and at the end, um, there was an interesting interchange of between theory and practice. Yeah. And uh, that brought us to the inner development goals, and then our our conversation today. Yeah, I love that notion of the inner development goals. And I would like you to talk about uh, the very interesting work you're doing researching the essentially the, the life of an employee-owned company um, in real time. But what, what um, in a nutshell, were the inner development goals that you referred to when we had that conversation? They grow. The group that started them uh, grew out of the sustainable goals from the UN. And I think as, as we have begun to realize and everywhere, the outer development requires a, an inner capacity. And so these folks began to develop um, these five goals across the spectrum and then, then there are inner goals within those as well. And they've been meeting and discussing and, and Yesterday ended a um, a com competitive selection process from certain 
applicants across com- uh, countries that they wanted more represented mm-hmm. within within the, the spectrum of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so that group is is going to hopefully broaden um, us across cultures and across all kinds of thoughts regarding interdevelopment, as well as bring more access to interdevelopment, the goals in terms of the sustainability goals of the UN. Right. So the, the, were there, I think, 14 or 17 of those at one point? Uh, yes, yes. The UN uh, Global Sustainability Goals. And so if you look at them as a, um, a circle within a circle within a circle within a circle, now it's got, reached the point of uh, the immediate experience of, of, of people. But in my mind, that's a good thing because, as you just said, it connects us to these abstractions, uh, however we're living our lives organizationally. Uh, is there a quick example that comes to your mind of a material, uh, an emerging inner goal that now that you've expanded the conversation uh, is going to be easy to understand <laughs> by folks like me? <laughs> well, you know, one of them involves being. Uh, another, you know, involves relationship, uh, you know, and so as you read them, they're not they're not a foreign language. Yeah. The thing that I think that for those of us in, inter- in organizational development that makes them particularly important now is that we have talked about development, but we've not used the modalities like Kagan or the interdevelopment group in a way that is, in a sense, practice. Mm-hmm. So as you look at the interdevelopment goals of being, thinking, relating, collaborating, and acting, it's not that we don't have a notion of them. And it's not that consultants in the field don't have a relationship with these goals as they're promoting development within a corporation. And way back when uh, you and I were, were just studying, mm-hmm. I remember um, an old timer at that time, whose name I can't remember at the moment, spoke of the fact that organizations can only move forward with those who can and those who will. Ah, I like that. Yeah, I do. And I think that's the point of the practice. Yep, those who can and will. Yes, and how do we promote capacity within those kinds of dynamics that can encourage the kind of growth that we're needing in our time? Yeah. My own my own view on that is that one of the things that employee ownership does as an advantage is that there's, in a sense, no reason to hold anyone back. Hmm. Whether it's by pay, whether it's by expertise, why it's by growth, it's by definition, in a sense, going back to Adam Smith and his theory of moral development and uh, wealth of nations, which was very a very spiritually based thought of doing well and doing good all in the same package. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That in a sense, employee ownership is is a pure sense of that. Yeah, encouraging people to be all they can be, and 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 then adding the dynamic for the good of the whole. And and then the whole beyond the whole, in the sense exactly. that un, employee owned companies, from my experience, tend to be very uh, aware of the social conditions, particularly in their immediate community, because the owners live there. <laughs> they don't live in the all of them, you know, up in the in the fancy suburbs. So they're there. Uh, they're they're close to their families and friends and all kinds of things going on in the churches. And so that that social consciousness is part of the will, isn't it? You know, so they can is not having no uh, artificial limits on their ability to, to learn and grow on the job. And the will has to do with their their desire to grow and and 
make a difference or to matter. These are things that we've talked about forever. And I love the sound of it. And, and as you look at that idea of the will and can, it's also that most of us don't see possibilities until we're in the fray. Yeah. I mean, there was a group years ago at, at IBM that were the thinkers. And what they would often do from the stories that I've heard, not, not having been one of them, um, is that they would walk, they would walk into town. They would walk in nature. They would get involved in a conversation with a teenager, uh, but they would get themselves out of their own box. Yeah. And sometimes they'd race whatever they were working on to this odd person, like a plumber. Um, and that they didn't know that that field at all or whatever. And they, and they would just throw out this question. And often what would come back would have a base of practicality that would be a ground. And in a in if you look at if we look at the idea that um, a lot of what we know in terms of the of scientific endeavors occurred in a dream. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that as we look at employee ownership, in a sense, if we'd also look at like the Fero uh, model. There's a whole way of being and including as a person that you don't have when you're a number and you're just a wage. And management has accountability to the owners. Yeah. Mutual accountability, if you will, exactly. in employee-owned. Yeah. And I, I can understand from a historical and legal standpoint why you still need to be called employee in tax purposes and everything else. But it, it, it's almost a paradox. I'm an owner, but I'm an employee. And, and, and this takes us to that very classic employer status, which is separate in, in, in structural ways and so forth and so on. And um, I don't know, over the time you've been studying this, uh, Cecile, the, how do you wrestle with, the, or do you even wrestle with the employer versus employee uh, paradigm? My study was done uh, with Karis Reels. And one of the things that Bill Karras did, oh, 10 years before he uh, sold the company to, to, to his employees, was to begin to write a long-term plan, which was basically both value-based and practical. Mm-hmm. And during that time, one of the elements that occurred to him was that the he came in it. Well, it, the insight came to him of, of a way of making a statement that later became a mission statement and also the company purpose, which is in truth, to improve the lives of our growing corporate community. And growth could be interpreted in many ways in his head in that, but also community. Like that. Which links the inside and the outside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, that became a little bit like the golden rule. That was something that even when people didn't understand what employee ownership was, they understood that piece. And they each had their own subjective view of what improvement meant for them. Uh, for example, one of the elements in the company was doing very well, at, at, particularly at the start of the, uh, of the transition. Somebody mentioned one day at a meeting, you know, the cars in the parking lot are different. And somebody said, what do you mean? Well, we've got more new trucks. <laughs> okay. And that was a sign of a growing prosperity. Yeah, they they wanted to be able to sell the company at ten percent a year, but that got into some IRS dilemmas. And see, Bill was well. I should I shouldn't say it wasn't the selling piece that was at issue. Bill gave fifty percent of the company, and he wanted to do that first. Mm -hmm. And at ten percent a year, that put people into some tax problems with their four hundred one ks and all that, and sure. so. 
uh, they needed to pull back from that amount. And so they did, uh, and they changed percentages. And then with the dot-com bus, they had to slow down uh, in terms of the value of the company and, and all that kind of mm-hmm. dilemma. Mm-hmm. But the whole but the whole way of working this through, and one of the goals that Bill had at the start, one of the commitments that he made was that he would not only sell the company to the employees, having given it simply a, a he called it selling it at 50% of market value. Um, there was this idea that he wanted to bring employees into the business. Yeah. That was why he had bought the company from his dad. Yeah. And so his commitment was to teach employees the business. And my observations coming back to the inner development goals that, that are I'm, I'm working on a little bit differently than I did years ago, one of the elements that I'm recognizing is that relationship of awareness and what we see in a situation and how we grow with it. And one of the elements that was very difficult for people to understand, I felt at the beginning, was what it really meant to be an owner. Yeah. And it's a foreign idea for unless you are literally, and I think Vermont was where all of this started. Did the sense of being an owner when you're a farmer? Yeah, I am. I know that. But to step out into in quotes someone else's employee locks a, a mindset, um, and it it does put you in a peripheral position in the business, which is kind of odd, isn't it? It's they they do the business, but they aren't. Um, savvy and, and feeling the business as you expect Bill, the owner, would feel. So he wants to transfer that feeling and share it with a lot of folks, right? Right. Yeah. And one of the elements that I feel very, that I was very pleased to watch and even more pleased as I've gone recently through some notes Chris Mackin of Ownership Associates, who was a consultant, now a teacher, a professor at Rutgers, um, developed a decision-making model using what many of us in organizational behavior thought of as the 34 decisions from it for a bus- every business had to make. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pardon me, whether you were five people or a hundred people. I mean, it, you know, that th- these decisions in some fashion, would need to be made. And he, one of the very important elements of it was that in the system, everyone, every employee, every worker could alert that a decision needed to be made. And then the process led to a single decision making. Even as a role, and as and uh, I sat through a lot of groups working their own each each division each separate site had part of the system that was for them the site goals and all that those decisions would be made locally, mm-hmm. and then there were the decisions that would need to be made corporately. Mm-hmm. which were made by a corporate steering committee. Mm-hmm. And I should probably mention that group before I go any further. Bill's original vision was not just for employee ownership. It was for employee governance. Ah, yeah. And being a Vermonter, one person, one vote, was a very critical element. And he, he was very comfortable with town meeting where everybody came together mm-hmm. and that kind of confrontation. Sometimes lovely and sometimes not. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I never saw Maine, a town remember? meeting that went smoothly in my experience of them in small town life, but I, I, I loved it. I loved the, um, the trust that went with listening to people who <laughs> sometimes irritate the hell out of you, but you still listen. <laughs> so Bill brought that to the, to the ethos of the company. 
Exactly. And the company had had an experience of the site manager's meeting with corporate executives in Rutland. Uh, and of course, at that time, the uh, the company had, had you know, was headquarters in, headquartered in Rutland, Vermont, but it had a branch in Connecticut. It had a, a branch in North Carolina. And it had a branch in, in what they called Michiana, which was the Michigan-Indiana border, and California. Some of these were, you know, assembly sites. Some of them were uh, manufacturing as well. And so they would all come together and they would discuss the company. To do the long-term plan implementation, he had gathered a group with the ESOP lawyer and others that needed to be involved to form the ESOP with employees. And part of the criteria was he wanted employees that were very verbal, not necessarily agreeers. And he wanted those people represented and they came forward as a long-term plan steering committee and then the implementation. They developed a strategy and structure for the implementation of the, I should say, the allocation for the stock that was not higher, that was not hierarchically based. Mm. The salary in 1995 that was settled on was was thirty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. That was a small percentage. The larger percentage was longevity. <clears throat> and that went forward. And uh the employees, in a sense, voted on that. They voted, they had a few allocations, formulas that they voted on. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the one that, that, that uh, for the longevity was the one that was selected. And people really liked that model of having corporate site uh, managers with the employees in a group wrestling this stuff out. The lawyer at one point between Bill's wanting to do the 50% discount and this particular structure was a little bit unusual because it was very democratic. Mm. And uh, and that's how the system started. So as you moved along in the decision-making structure, there was this whole desire to bring this, as we know in OD, this has been one of our tenants going back uh, to the beginning, is that we want decisions made at the lowest level possible. Yes. And this was the Keras goal as well. And part of the dilemma Excuse me. Part of the dilemma was the idea of defining a decision, those 34, in the context that they were. Part of what my my own thinking changed at was watching the workers change as they worked with these ideas. Because they had to grapple. There was nobody there to say what you ought to do. And so, and, and the facilitators that were working on this would, would be asking questions like, have you ever had, have you ever been involved in purchasing equipment? What was the dilemma? What was the, what was the thing? And so the people that were in the room would talk about machine, their own machine breaking down. And what happened about getting it repaired and, and all of that. And so as you watch them, you begin to see possibilities emerge in the room. Wow, that must have been wonderful. It, it was. And also because all I was doing was writing. And watching and, and, and witnessing. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, but I had no... Uh, in a sense, facilitation responsibility, right, or anything like that. I was, I was there really just um, watching the north wind come through. As and 
but I was aware <coughs> pardon, that the importance of experience. Mm-hmm. And I think in so much of what we're doing now, that element is being lost. I think that is when, when people say that book learning is not enough. I think it's that piece. Yeah. So the experience aspect that you witnessed in, in action, essentially, as people were wrestling with whatever is a machine repair issue or whatever the issue may be, you saw people uh, spontaneously advancing thoughts mulling him over all of that. Uh, and I am guessing that there was no one in those meetings, hopefully, who thought, well, I don't want to say anything. I'm just the guy, you know, hauling out the trash at the end of the day. I'm only the uh, second person in the line to handle that particular process. So that subordination, which... I've always railed against anyway, being you and I being Northern New Englanders, uh, it's, it's, it's real. And, and wait, why it may be seemed to be missing today in many workplaces is that there's this idea now that with digital fact and digital digitized facts and all these kind of abstractions of the business decision makers at the, at that level, uh, can can see enough and and execute or and and issue orders, which then therefore must be executed. It's a it's a scary trend. <laughs> if if I had my way, and would you agree? I would take those digital streams and I would add them to the toolkit on the floor, so that people could see digitally see the facts of the work, and and that probably emerged. Cecile didn't as you were studying this company. Yes. The, the- like for every job, there, there was particularly in manufacturing, there, there were very straightforward things, primarily for safety. Sure. You know how to do the job, but there were there were there were things like that. Also, in terms of training, training mm-hmm. became a much more important element throughout the study. Um, and the idea, one of the elements, um at the corporate steering committee meeting, I always, when I took notes, put people's names, because I could not tell from the notes the difference between a corporate manager and a worker often. Wow. Okay? Wow. And there was one occasion, there was a a consultant that was working on uh, the consensus model that the corporate steering committee used okay and this was a part of the meeting that he was not on so he and i were sitting together at at a little table i usually sat a little table off to the side Mm -hmm. taking notes and so all of a sudden this man came in late for the meeting and anyway um sat down with the stuff and then stood up and then basically with a little line of profanity looked at the management and said what's going on and so anyway bill Karras responded and said wow i know you're upset but i don't know what you're upset about but we all want to know now and bill sat down Wow, what pa- what patience with the process. <laughs> well, anyway, this this man said he had just come back from the shop and there was a problem and somebody had tried to resolve it but because everybody was in that room. Mm-hmm. They couldn't resolve it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, to make a long story short, the important element there for everybody that was there, and this was discussed later, particularly because the consultant I was next to said, you know, I was at at a meeting yesterday of a major corporation in Chicago. 
if this had happened there, that man would have been ushered out. It's kind of security. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was, of course, the fact that this person was very known, had been known, and was also very known as conscientious, and also not dramatic. And somebody said next to me later at, at lunch, I heard more out of him today than I have for years we worked together. So that, that, incident, a, it, it, that incident really moved him and, 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 and brought him to a point where he felt responsible for the company's exactly. learning this, not just, you know, complaining to the next guy or out, out on the parking exactly. lot. But actually and he was had, very much the owner. Yes. And that was one of the things that's, that a couple of the managers brought out. That's a, that's a great moment, Cecile. Yes. And, and, and also for people in the room, that this man was so respected mm-hmm. with his observation. And the vice president, after, this, after, he had, after they had done a little bit of this, the, the vice president and the local, the local site manager left with him to make sure they could get this resolved very quickly because he, they both knew that it could be resolved. But they thought if they both went, they could make, each of them could make one of the calls and they would be back to the meeting factor. And that was fine. But <clears throat> are there other ways that this could have been handled? Probably. But it was one of those things that everybody used as a teaching moment. And, and, and brought it forward. And it was perfect, in a sense, for the decision-making model that was unfolding. Because everyone could be an alerter. And this man was an alerter. Yep. Yep. And, and that was in front of 50 people that were attending that meeting. And I should say that the, the employees, the workers that were the um, at the steering committee, every site could elect one representative for 50 employees. Or if the site was too small, they got one anyway. Yeah. So some site, at one, at one point, uh, there was a, a, a very large site and they had several representatives. And, and at that time, the, um, the steering committee was quite large. But the, and basically, as you look at, let's say, administrator management types with one board representative, the steering committee is pretty close to half and half. Or it was the last time that I sat at meetings. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's the kind of thing um, that I think is just a very um, wonderful way that the um, Keras companies uh, brought forward in a sense what people are talking about in, in engagement. Bill felt that, that real ownership was a whole different tool Oh, yeah. psychological ownership. And his big thing when he was talking to the employees, particularly at the beginning, was that the important thing was not that they were going to be making better wages, which of course they wanted them to do. It's that they were building wealth. And that has been very, very true. I mean, um, some of the employees have left now it's over 20 years. Uh, this, this started in 1995. And so, you know, they have, they've got longevity. And so they're, they're leaving with, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of retirement money. Yep. Yep. And, and you know, those, and, those are their stocks. So, um, that's, exactly. So they certainly would. Knowing that and seeing the example, the younger, newer employees would say, "Hey, I, I want to be able to re- retire with with this stock. So I'm going to be very interested in how the company's doing profitably and in expense management and all that, because that keeps the worth of the stock at the level that will uh, get us where we want to be. So it's much different than." the abstraction of stocks that most people working in companies that are supported through stocks, that they may see the numbers up on the, 
on a yes. banner or something, but it doesn't have that same relevance. Right. And, and, and they get their evaluation statement every year. Yeah. So right there it is right there. Yeah. Right. And Keras has been more profitable as an employee owned company than it ever was previously. Yeah. That's the proof of the pudding. Exactly. And people are making better wages and um, they're involved in the decision-making and it's not a perfect world because there's always new, new, new problems. There's always new employees. There's always, there's always, always, as we all know, the human condition does not leave, you know, everything um, behind when you become an owner. But the whole idea of being a part of something. Yeah. Belonging. The collaboration, having everybody represented in a room together when decisions, major decisions are made. Open book management. I mean, everybody knows, you know, the, the financials. And um, and at Keras, it's the idea of the governance. There are two members of two workers on the on the corporate board of trustees. I should say corporate board of directors. Board of directors, uh, yeah. yeah. The, um, the whole way of, and the, on the ESOP trustees, there are two managers and three, three employees. And they spend a great deal of time working to make sure that they understand their fiduciary responsibilities. They went through a whole system development for their ESOP trustees. Mm. Uh, and as they've done for their corporate board of directors. And so as you look again at, at the idea of that organizations move with those who can and those who will, building the capacity is critical. Yeah. And, and, Technology, yes, technology for sure, but it's the human capacity that you're focusing on, I think, Cecile, yeah. in, in relation to the, the changes in technology that are inevitable. Now, this company, as I recall, uh, looking a little bit at their uh, webpage, uh, makes reels, essentially things that cable and other wires are wrapped around. Right either made of wood or ever hardly originally wood, but, you know, other materials. And people say, well, why all of this just to make a reel? But it's not just two, is it? It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of work and talent needed to make those reels, get them um, sold, obviously produced, shipped, you know, distributed, shipped, all of that. So it's a pretty complex, complex business. It really is, and even though parts of it, as you, as you indicated, are very simple, mm -hmm. you know, and as you look at in today's world, they've had to get much more sophisticated about safety. Yes. Um, and all of that. And um, and they've now expanded, well, they expanded to, into Mexico uh, even before they were 100% employee-owned. But the um, they're also now in Canada, and um, and are doing you know very very important things in Mexico. They developed a way of of a parallel way to create employee ownership for their employees there, mm -hmm. and the Canadian company will be doing something like that in the future. Mm -hmm. The experience will be international at that point. Oh, yeah. And it already is partly, but it will be even more so. You know, there's this is a nostrum, really, that the bigger you become, the more bureaucratic you must become, the, the further away uh, from the point of work, you know, the, the, in quotes, corporation grows. And I don't hear this at all in this particular example you've been studying, Cecile. Somehow or another, they're figuring out how to get big as well as maintain uh, the close interaction necessary to, to have employee ownership. And I think that the two elements for that are really the idea of the governance. Mm -hmm. Keep it low. The, 
keep that local decision making as closely can keep the author- authority where it belongs. Right. And, and, and to bring everybody into the room when there are major things to be discussed at least twice a year. And you can do um, this now with technology, just like you and I, I mean, you're in Vermont, I'm in Connecticut. You can have uh, people from all over that, that company's touch points in conversation electronically seeing each other. It's no longer, oh, I can't, you know, we can't send, bring people from Canada all the way down here to Mexico. Sure, Canada can talk to Mexico. So that's a cool thing. Yeah, and they, and they did a lot of that during COVID. Oh, they yeah. Had done, they did a lot of it in terms of many different kinds of meetings. The corporate steering committees were always done in person. Mm-hmm. But, of course, with COVID, they couldn't. And so they developed ways of doing that. Um to be more interactive, um, you know, in terms of, of groups and that sort of thing. But the idea of one of the things that I always felt was built that he had an understanding was of the one and the many. Yeah. Of not losing either side of that. And he had a feel for some of the underlying elements of of problem of problems he could really get into uh seeing how something might unfold to individuals and how important it was that they understood these pieces mm. um and Sorry. and the and the company has a, a one of the first group lessons that it did across the corporation uh, using it, what, what in those days was called Zenger Mill, all the supervisors took courses in something called listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the five steps to listening. Yeah. Active listening. Sure. Yes. And so they were, that was sort of, I thought that was just such an interesting, many people would have started with leadership as many groups have since uh, that I've read about mm-hmm, yeah. how to lead and how to be a leaderful person. Mm-hmm. But they start, they they wanted their supervisors and their workers to be able to listen to each other. So they started out training the supervisors and then all the workers took these classes as well. I just love it. I love it. It, it, I, is, I the, did too. it is the foundation, isn't it? Uh, listening and 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 seeing it as a practice listening is a practice that can be cultivated and grown and developed i'm looking at my clock cecile and i i love this i love this story but i i do have uh at least one primary curiosity uh, and you and i it's a speculative one bill Karras was cut from a certain cloth what do you know off the top of your head about his origin that brought him to a point where not only did he have this company at hand, but also had this democratic uh, desire, the, the belief in the one of the many? Where do you think that came from? Bill and I are pretty much contemporaries. Okay. He was raised in Rutland and I was raised in Bennington, Vermont, 50 miles apart. Mm-hmm. But I think we, we shared... Part of I, I shouldn't I don't want to, to to make this the same as though I'm saying this is the same. But I think that historically some of the events of the days were similar. For example, town meeting. Yep. The kind of leadership that Vermont had in the during the days of our being raised, and we were just at the edge of the farm industry changing. Yeah. And, and, of course, it was also the time when the hippies came in. It was the time of the war. Yeah. It was the time of, you know, a whole lot of, 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 of unrest. But I think that one of the elements that Bill was very, very respectful of is the democratic idea. Mm. He mm. was less comfortable with straight hierarchy. Yeah. And bureaucracy for its own sake. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. even as he respected management. Yeah. But the first thing, for example, in 1980, when he bought the company from his dad, he had been a part of the company for a number of years by that point. He started talking about participatory management, and he spent a lot of time on the floor with workers. And the other thing that probably was a very big element for Bill that might be different than for other other, uh, entrepreneurs becoming employees, selling to their employees, is that Bill's dad bought or started the company when Bill was in second grade. Okay. And Bill spent many afternoons, most afternoons after school in the shop. The smell of sawdust in his nose. <laughs> Pardon me? Sawdust in, in, his, in his nose and, and s- sound of machines in his ears. But as a little guy, that must have been very profound. It, it's the sound of work. It's the sound of money being made, sound of problems being solved for people who want to wrap cable around something. <laughs> so that's a great influence. And I, and I think that, and he loves the people. Yeah. He loved those men. In those days, it was primarily men. Yeah. That were doing the, you know, doing the routing, that were doing, you know, all the work, the assembly. And he recognized how much they cared about his father's company. Yeah. In a way that probably he would have never known otherwise. Yeah. If he had just stepped in as a 30 something uh, outside guy coming in to take over, you know, the family business. Uh, having had other experiences, but he was part and parcel of the DNA of that business, wasn't he? And I think that was part of the practice for him. Mm-hmm. Was he always heard their stories? Yeah. And so he was always wanting to know, and he had he had that that very inspiring way of looking at them. Mm. Because when he was a little person, remember, they were the experts. Yeah. Yeah. And the roles changed, of course. But he never discounted what they knew. That I would like to bottle up and, you know, and put in glasses all over the, the, the business world and say, drink this. It's called respect. To the extent that you are truly interested in what people know who are doing the job. <laughs> That's a one page management textbook, but and, boy, I'd love to see it come back. And Pew research this past, or maybe June, they brought out a research piece on the great resignation. Mm-hmm. One of the elements for why people were leaving their jobs was the fact that they were not respected. Yes. I've seen that, that those studies too, and those results, it's, it's troubling. And I think that one of the dilemmas that we have as a country is that many people think if money is being made, why are they worried about this? Yeah. Yeah, they still see profits. They still see, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, I think you know, you and I need at least another seventy or so years uh, to work on this, Cecile. And I'd love to find a way we were working on it together sometime because you really have a passion uh, and, and 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 a unique vantage point. I will wrap up with this about your practice. What a wonderful concurrence that you and bill were contemporaries you have had the access over a period of time now the rare access as a observer and appreciator of organization development you know what works thank you you really do you got a great uh, great story I, i hope there's a book in this for you i'm working on a proposal even as we speak there you go. Please do. Uh, and as, as I said, the first page should be follow Bill Karras's advice and pay attention, damn it. <laughs> yes. Thanks so much, Cecile. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcast, where we discuss practice with a capital P. 
If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcast-page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, and, and one more thing. How could I forget? The book On Practice as a Way of Being is available now in digital form, something that would be new like podcasting to many of us. And it's a, a great way of learning more and more about what this podcast presented when Peter Vale and I originated it several years ago. So please come to www.mylibrary, one word, dot world slash practice, and you'll see what I mean. Thank you.